it's lovely to be back here. I, I had friends take me to the cloister today, and it's a magic world. And so uh, just going into the medieval architecture is just beautiful. So I'm, I, and I'm happy to be here and see a number of you that I know, and many of you are old friends that I haven't met yet. So that's very sweet. I'd like to start by inviting everybody to stand. So I'd like to start with a, just a few minutes of standing meditation. It, I find it hugely helpful. Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambuddhasa Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambuddhasa Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asama Sambuddhasa Ambuidang damang sangang namasami. In the cloister gardens, the vitality that was present with the herbs and the flowers and the birds was really noticeable. The birds had all made nests under the, um, the clay roof tiles and the garden had worms and uh, food for them. And so there was this tremendous buzz of life in this pretty small garden, you know. There was a lot going on there. And what this reminds me of is the the many different things when they come together, how it supports a sense of um, having a ecosystem that is flourishing when there's soil that is healthy, when there are plants that are feeding and nourishing, when there is shelter, uh, the, the vitality that is present is noticeable. And so I, I think of that, and I think of what we each need in order to be well. You know, there isn't any one of us that can do this on our own, you know? We need a whole variety of things to come together in order for our basic needs to be met, in order for our hearts to feel the connection with others, in order to hear the teachings and put them into practice. And when we have those things, when we have our basic needs met, when we have friends, when we have places where we can practice, when we have communities and teachings and teachers where there's resonance, it's a completely different experience than when we don't, you know? It's just a completely different experience. So we're not in this alone. 
we we never have been but the way our world is set up is that it kind of want to makes us believe that it's up to us to do it all by ourselves and that is not the case it cannot be the case you know and so when we have a sense of um, understanding of the myriad of different things that come together for ourselves to feel uh, our basic needs met, our hearts open, then in those contexts we're in a different position to be able to look out and help each other. You know? So one of the things that I noticed when I was on the subway traveling both to the cloisters and back is the volume of people. (laughs) There's a lot of people on that subway. And it's not easy to tune in to many to see how they're doing and, and if they've got their needs taken care of, you know? It's like there's too many folks and it moves too fast and we're all squished together, you know? But I got on one one subway, one train, and noticed somebody was there was blind, and so I checked out to see if to to show where there was a seat for him and to make sure that he knew which stop was at. But it's like, you know, that when there's a lot of people, it's hard to tune in to what's needed and to be able to respond. So there's an irony that happens. And the irony is, is that for me, in order to deal with the volume of people, I pull back. And in pulling back, I become less able to notice what's going on for everyone. And when I have less ability to notice what's going on, I can be less responsive. But sometimes when there's a large number of people, then there can be the need to open up in a different way. And so learning how to navigate the sense impact and also the heart space is an interesting process. Now, I want to tell you some stories about what happened for me when I was living in the bush of Australia. Because I went from a monastery in England, which was which was a, a rural monastery in the countryside, in farmland. And I went from there to a place in Australia. I'd never been to Australia before. And I was staying in a forest hermitage in the middle of a national park that was surrounded by three other national parks. So there was this tiny piece of private property. Tiny was 500 acres. But tiny compared to the, to the 2 million acres of national park that was surrounding it, okay? And there were very few people, okay? And in that space where there was a few people, there was not the need to pull back. There was the need or the willingness or the interest to open up and see what was present. And for me, there were some very interesting lessons that were happening. One was just to watch what was happening in my own attention as I was initially feeling myself as a solid lump in an unfamiliar landscape. And then I began to sense that where I was was friendly and welcoming. So, you know, what is it like when you go somewhere and somebody welcomes you, you know? It's like you can relax, you know? You can relax. Well, I was experiencing that welcome from the land. And I noticed that there was also a relaxation 
Okay? My shoulders relaxed. I was curious. I, was in, I wasn't pulled back. I was forward and interested and curious. So when there is welcome, and then there's a different response to how we engage in the environment. Now, in my own experience, I had started this path with this very clear sense that the world was full of suffering and that my main objective was to see if I could get out of it. You know? Does that resonate? Anybody else have a similar feeling? You know? But there was something that happened for me after many years of meditation where I recognized that even though I had a deep-seated hunger to get out of suffering, there was something about the striving to get out that was actually causing the conditions that was creating the suffering, that I actually needed to find a different way of relating to it. And so a variety of things happened, and there was the willingness to explore what happens if instead of trying to get out of this suffering, I turn my attention to try and meet it, just meet it, Not get out of it, but just meet it. What happens with that? So that aspiration had happened in a way where it coincided for me with taking the Bodhisattva vows with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in in the intuition that somehow the change of motivation would help me shift from creating the causes that was perpetuating the tension in my system to being able to find another way of relating to the dilemma. And what I experienced was it had a very big impact, a surprisingly big impact. Because in the bush of Australia, I wasn't trying to get rid of anything. I was just trying to turn towards it. And in turning towards it, there was a different way of receiving my own experience and a different way of being with the things that I hadn't had access to before. So it was as if, even though I had been meditating for many years, there were layers of my mind and my heart that were not available to me. And with this welcome of the land, with this shift of orientation in my motivation, they began to open up. And then it became very interesting because as I began to open up to my own experience, I also began to open up to what was in the world around me in a new way. And the new way was that it was no so much a sense of me being a solid lump in a friendly and welcoming nature, but that that sense of veil that separated me separated inside and outside, started to soften. And so in the circumstance where, like, if you hurt your hand, you take care of it because it belongs. It's part of who you are. If you've got a splinter or, or you're bleeding, you take care of your hand. It belongs. But we have this arbitrary designation that at the edge of our skin then what's outside of it does not belong. It's it's a choice whether I take care because it doesn't belong and what doesn't belong 
I don't have any responsibility to. But in the bush, in that context, when there was the softening of that sense of internal and external, there was just nature that was arising without the distinction between where it belonged to me and when it didn't belong to me, the sense of me softened. And when that softens, then what was clear was there was no limit to where the edge of belonging began and ended. Everything belonged. And so then there was just the natural response of how do you take care when everything belongs? Now, this had an impact on my own mind-body experience because as I was experiencing this externally, that everything belongs, I was also experiencing this internally, that everything belongs here as well. And so the stuff that had been compartmentalized and not available to me because I didn't feel that it belonged, There was no longer that limitation. And so in that opening, there was also a releasing, a relaxing in my own skin, a sense of inner contentment and well-being that was new. And so it wasn't the case that I was filled with a sense of total overwhelm about the amount to take care of. What was happening was the heart was filled with this incredible sense of connection that I was surrounded, immersed, held. There was no sense of not belonging. Now this connection of recognizing the thinness of the veil that separates, where the heart opens, where there is a genuine capacity to see that loving kindness and care and compassion has no arbitrary designation of where it stops, is the insight that the mystics have. That's what they speak of. Seeing God in every one, in every living being. Seeing pure presence, seeing the sacred everywhere, in everything, everywhere. And when this occurs, It isn't the feeling of being in a non-stop experience of panic, of trying to care for so many who are needing support. It's the experience of fullness, of, of love that has no boundary to it, that is pervasive that it's ever-present, it's timeless. And it is everywhere. It's not the feeling that you're going into a desert with your dropper to try and fill it up with moisture. 
It's like being in a wellspring that's suffusing. So this experience of touching into something that is pervasive and timeless and ever-present is one of the facets of the awakened mind. And it is one of the results of meditation practice. It's one of the results of letting go, of taking ourselves to be the lump that holds us as being separate from everyone else. It's the result of practice. And this result brings about a tremendous sense of fullness, even while there can be a tremendous sensitivity and recognition to the harshness and the hardships and the challenges that are present for many different people. I was staying at Buddhist Insights these last few days. And Buddhist Insights is in the Rockaway. You probably know where that was. Before I stayed there, I didn't know what that was. And I'd walk to the beach. And the first day that I walked to the beach, I went to the beach early in the morning to meditate. So it was just after six, you know? And I walked past a house. And in front of the house was a man who was drinking beer at a quarter past six in the morning. And so I kept my opinion to myself about what is he doing drinking beer at this hour of the morning. But he had a fabulous garden, and in the garden were many, many, many raised beds. So I was asking him about the raised beds in his garden and what they were doing and who was helping and who they were planning to feed and how it was going to work. And he was delighted to talk, you know. But I... I had a sense that there's a reason why somebody's drinking beer at 6 o'clock in the morning. This does not happen for no reason, you know? And then somebody was walking with me down at the beachway, and when they were there, they were telling me how far the water came when, when Hurricane Sandy was through, you know? There was an awful lot of damage that took place. And so that was then, and there's been a lot of repair, but we look around at the challenge that people have to get their basic needs met, to have medical care, to have the kind of safety so that they don't feel that they're at risk physically or emotionally, where the number of people that are struggling with, with alcohol and with drugs, you know, the kids that are on the street because they don't have safety in their homes, you know, the moms that are single, the dads that have a family they want to support and they don't have an income, you know. There's not a shortage. There's not a shortage of suffering and sorrow in this world. And so when we, and then we look at what's going on in our political situation and the number of people that are targeted, you know, and it's not as if they haven't been targeted. But all of a sudden, there's a kind of like intensity 
where there are, there's, uh, there's an urgency, there's a need to step up and show up and speak up. in order to protect the safety and the basic needs and the sense of well-being, the sense of belonging to a whole number of people. So if we are engaging in activist practice, which is to show up, it is to organize, it is to speak, it is to speak about the needs that are not getting met, there is a tremendous sense of a cohesiveness that can build with that. But when we do that, and that is not coming from a deep place of Dhamma, then what happens easily is that we feel overwhelmed with the amount of need. It just feels way, way, way too big and way too hard. So the, there are large areas of our demographic. There's large numbers of people. There are areas of need. There's areas in our climate. There's areas in politics. And what is helpful is when we feel a calling to step up and speak to that, where we feel really this is critical. And when we bring forward the activist hunger for justice to recognize that until we are building a world where everyone's needs are taken into a consideration, when we move towards that direction, then that is a world that everyone will benefit from. It isn't only a world where some benefit at other people's expenses. When we shift our focus and begin to see the way in which we are connected to each other and how when you are well and you are well and you are well and you are well, that's a different level of well-being for me than when you're not. So traditionally, in the, in the Theravadan communities, it has often been the case, at least from the Dhamma talks that I have heard for these many years, that engagement was considered a secondary practice or not, not the response of people who were really committed to waking up. And I am... I am clear in my own path that when we bring forward the clarity of insight, the heart of compassion, and understanding of loving kindness into our lived experience, it means that it is not possible to just stay in the classical meditation experience and not pay attention 
to what's going on around us. It's inviting a response. It's inviting engagement. It's inviting showing up. How? Everybody needs to decide that. Where, when, which particular issue you each need to feel where you feel called. But what does it feel like to not pay attention as opposed to what does it feel like when we do and we bring forward the acts of care and kindness and responsiveness that we have within us to give. I mean, it was not a big deal for me to turn to the man who was, had a white cane who was blind and say, there's a seat. What's your stop? You know? I didn't lose anything from doing that. I gained the sense of, oh, there's a warmth, there's a feeling, there's a sense of connection, there's a sense of we're in this a little bit together. You know? So when we have our meditation practice and our practice allows us to access these qualities of mind that take us through the limitations of who and what we take ourselves to be. So that it is open, it is big, it is vast. That anchors us to a source of energy, a source of compassion, a source of love that supports so that we do not get burnt out in the same way that it is really easy to do when we do not have access to refuge, to practice, and to what is pervasive, what is big, what is vast, that quality of heart that is not gripping, but open and tender and connected and loving and feeling that in simple things, in everyday things, a heart of tenderness, So the path of practice has us start with our own experience, relating to our own experience, our own body, our own breath, developing the qualities of mind that support us bringing balance and alignment and ease and more joy, more contentment, more capacity with our own experience. And the step-by-step path of our teachings allows us to develop the muscles of the mind so that we can, bit by bit, feel a little bit more ease and well-being and balance in our own lives. 
And this is excellent. It's really necessary. It's important. And when our experience shifts from that sense of me as being here and being separate from you, then we are no longer in just a quality of increased sense of well-being to get a little bit more balance. We're shifting the perspective and seeing things in a bigger picture. That we are all part of a web of life. We cannot categorize and compartmentalize a web of life. Just like I couldn't go into that garden today and separate out and, and, and fence it off so that the, the soil and the, and, the, and the herbs and the flowers and the birds and the water were somehow distinct, separate things that didn't have any connection to each other. They were all connected to each other. They were all supporting the flourishing of that garden, the vitality of what was going on there. So we start with where we're at and we make a step-by-step path to learn how to relax with what is, meet what is, bring balance to what is, so that there is less tightness, less grasping, less pushing away of what is unskillful in a way that allows the heart to open. And this heart of ours, when we really begin to see it, it doesn't have hard edges and limits of where the edge is, of how much love is actually possible. And that is a surprise, to recognize the vastness of what we are actually capable of. I want to tell another story about what happened in the bush because this was also part of my shift. Somehow I grew up thinking that respect was something that you gave when somebody deserved it, earned it, was worthy of it. Is that something that you feel? (coughs) Maybe, yes, no, not sure. Yes, I've got a few nods happening. I was living in the same place in Australia and I was there with a, um, a Korean nun. And I don't know if you've had much contact with Korean practitioners and Korean monastics in particular, but they are formidable in their determination. I mean, it makes us look like, I'm not sure what, maybe kindergartners or something. They make very, very strong determinations and they hold them and they let that be a way in which their practice unfolds. So she was telling me that the practice that she wanted to do was called tiger practice. And tiger practice is a practice of not lying down. So you deliberately determine a period of time for a few days or a week or a month or several months where you do not lie down, and not only do you do not lie down, but you try not to sleep. So I was, I was up at strange hours of the night with this tiger practice, 
And outside of the meditation hall was an anthill. So I was watching the anthill at all hours of the day and the night because that's what you do when you're doing these intense kind of crazy practices. And I had noticed that the anthill was spilling over onto the path that we walked on in order to get to the meditation hall. And I was not born in New York. I was born in L.A. But there's some maybe similarities, which is that when you're born in a big city, you don't necessarily know about anthills. So I had this bright idea, which somebody in a city would have, which is that if I took a broom and I gently swept at the base of the anthill, that I would encourage them to relocate off of the path because the path was the path for the people. It was not the path for the ants. They were not supposed to be there. So I took the broom and I started sweeping. And guess what happened? The anthill mobilized and in a very short period of time, there was a search, eat, and destroy mission that all of them had. And so there were 10,000 ants that were mobilized around trying to find me and eat me alive. <laughs> but I'm a meditator. I might not be very, very smart, but I do learn. So I watched what was happening and recognized Actually, you know, who am I to decide where the anthill is supposed to be? And they don't look very happy about my, my motivation. So I thought it actually wasn't very skillful for me to do that. So I went and I took the broom and I put it against the side of the meditation hall. And the meditation hall was like as far away as the window. I put the, medita- the broom on the, on the meditation hall, and then I'm filled with loving kindness. This is another thing that somebody from a city would do. I walk back into the anthill, the charging anthill, thinking, I'll just give them loving kindness and help them calm down. <laughs> and to my amazement, I walked right back into the charging anthill, and not a single ant bit me. Not one ant bit me. And then I realized what I had done. You know, my intention shifted. I absolutely, from the naivety of the marrow of my bones, thought that that would be enough. And it was enough. The ants got the difference between my intention, which was harming them, and my intention not to harm them. From the time it took me to walk to the wall and back. I was flabbergasted, absolutely flabbergasted. So I was living in a little hut, and my hut was about five feet by seven feet, and I lived in that hut for two years, and I loved that hut. I just loved it. It was out in the middle of the bush, and I couldn't see any other man-made structures, and it was just beautiful. It was incredibly beautiful. And outside the hut, there was a Cadillac walking path. So if you've ever done walking meditations, there's B-grade, C-grade, D-grade, and Cadillac walking paths. And this was made out of soft, silky sand, and it was about three feet wide. It was perfectly flat. It was oriented exactly in the right direction. It was extremely long, and it was spectacularly beautiful everywhere you looked. Perfect walking path. And connected to my walking path was another path, and that path had was where I went in order to get to the meal, to the meditation hall, to the library, to the restroom. It was the path where I went everywhere. 
And off of that side path was another ant's hill, and that ant's hill was a bull ant's nest. Now, bull ants are a force to reckon with. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Australia and know about bull ants, but they're about an inch and a half long, and they've got these like prongs out the front of them. And if you get bit by a bull ant, it's incredibly painful. It swells up to be like the size of a golf ball, and then it itches. So it is like two weeks of un unmitigated, intensely unpleasant sensation. And so you learn very quickly to watch out for the bull ants. So when I was on that path, particularly when I was making that journey at night, I made sure I had my flashlight and I made sure to stay away for those ants because it didn't matter that I was a lot taller than them. They would come and bite me. But the fascinating thing was that 15 feet away was my path. And I walked on that path day and night with my eyes open and closed, frontwards and backwards, and they were constantly coming onto my path to drag bugs off back to their anthill. And they never once bit me. On my path, they stayed out of my way. On their path, I had to stay out of their way. And so I had these experiences with the ants, and it shifted my perception of the world, and I began to see that maybe there is a choice to live with respect simply because it is a good way of living, rather than demand that somebody prove that they are worthy in order to give it. And that was part of what shifted my way of being with my own experience. So when we touch this quality of respect and we give it because it feels good to live with respect, what happens? What happens? For me, what happens is that when I am in a position of feeling like somebody is doing something wrong to me, I don't ignore it, but I don't solidify around that as the only thing that is true about them. I keep it in perspective and look for the things about them that I can respect, that I have confidence, are wholesome, are skillful, that I can trust. When I do that, it makes it easier for me to stay in conversation with them and to find a way through the challenges. It also helps me when there are things that I do that I also don't respect. When I make mistakes that make me feel embarrassed or ashamed or regretful, when I stay connected to respect as a way of being rather than as something that one demands that the other is proven to be worthy of, then it makes it easier to be kind and caring to myself, to be wise and responsive.
So the path of practice brings us step by step into a body and a heart and mind that eventually has more balance, more ease. And yet our heart has the capacity to open up to something that is more than just a little bit more balance and a little bit more ease. And when we bring that quality of openness into our worlds and marry that with our passion for justice, with our understanding of the things that are going on in this world that are so challenging. We have something that is of vital importance. We have a path of practice that connects us to refuge. We have a way of being with each other that allows our heart to extend and to share and to touch. And we have a way of showing up and engaging that begins to start addressing some of the needs that are really pressing in this world. So let me pause here and open up the floor for questions and see how the questions open up a discussion. There's a question in the back. Hmm. About the tiger practice? What, say again, ask your question again. I did find it fruitful, and I found it fruitful in a very interesting way. Um, part of the reason why I found it fruitful was because I was able to um, work with a part of fear that I was dealing with and find a way through it in a way that was quite uh, opening for me. So I came to the retreat with several health problems, and some of those health problems were easily um, triggered or activated by stress. And one of the main stresses that could activate was sleep deprivation. So I, it was a setup, you know? It was like I was entering into a situation that was designed to activate the place where I felt most vulnerable and most tender. And when I, um, I knew that when I engaged in that tiger practice, that I couldn't do it just through will, that I had to do it by finessing it. I had to do it by breathing myself through resistances rather than forcing and pressing myself through them. But because I was on the edge of working with fear in a major way, because I had had some health issues that had been very active for 10 years, and if I didn't do it right, I knew that I would likely set myself up for a relapse that could take anywhere from three to six months to recover from. So it was like the stakes were really high. 
And yet there was something that was compelling about doing this intense, slightly insane practice. There was something that was a real yes to it. And so I wanted to honor the yes, but I wanted to do it in a way where I wasn't setting myself up for a medical crisis. And so that edge of knowing that I needed to engage, but engage in a way where I was not pushing, then allowed me to stay right, right, right on the edge of my experience and constantly relax and surrender rather than um, willfully determine to get through it. And the irony of that practice was even though that was a setup for a potential relapse, there was something in the release of the fear through exploring in that way where I was completely symptom-free for six months and it was the first time that had been the case for like 10 years. Yeah. So I found it hugely beneficial. Yeah. So that's the thing, is, is that we can do practices and we can do practices in a way which are beneficial or we can do practices in a way which are not beneficial. And so the trick is not so much the practice, but what we bring to it and how we relate to it. And that's true in every part of our life. It isn't so much what we're doing, but how we are relating to it as to whether or not that's actually something that's beneficial or not beneficial. And look, check it out. We can do that with washing the dishes. We can do that with doing the laundry. We can do that with calling somebody on the telephone. We can do that with every part of our life. We can bring our heart, our care, our interest to what we're doing and feel the result of that. Or we can, we can do something different. We can resist it. We can resent it. We can try and do five things at the same time and end up feeling completely dispersed or distracted. So it isn't so much what we do. It's the way that we do it and how we relate to that that's the secret sauce. Yeah. There's a question in the back here. Yes. So for me, I have um, learned a little bit more about that when I am up against my own flaws and weaknesses. 
and I recognize the many different things that I have done which I have not felt good about. And so when I really explore and examine my own faults, my own weaknesses, my own shortcomings, my own, the places where I'm not very mature or grown up, the places where I'm not uh, very integrated, the places where I make mistakes, then it gives me um, more capacity to be understanding of others. So when I look carefully at, at, at the, the magnitude of my own um, weaknesses, that helps me. But it also helps me to understand things in the sense that different people are at different levels of maturity. And, you know, we just would never, we would never look at a three-year-old and say that they're an imperfect five-year-old. We, we just, we wouldn't do that, you know? And we wouldn't look at somebody who's 11 and say they're, you know, they're a malformed 13-year-old. You know, a three-year-old is three, and a five-year-old is five, and an 11-year-old is 11, and a 13-year-old is 13. And at each of these different ages, people have different skills and abilities and capacities and discernment and places where they get mixed up and places where they get confused. And, you know, if you're around kids or if you're good with kids, you know, then it's really helpful to love them where they're at and to give them support to help them grow or do the next thing. And so support is both loving as well as, as firm, you know. So, you know, it, it, I'm quite happy that there aren't three-year-olds driving cars. You know, they don't need to have free license to do whatever they want. But on a, on a maturity level, there's an equivalent that happens for people in terms of development. But because that's not very clearly understood or mapped out, then we think that an adult is an adult, and there is no difference between one adult and another adult because they're all supposed to be behaving like adults. But the reality is is that there's different levels of maturity that adults can be at. And when we have a sense of what they might be like, then the same can happen is is that we don't ask a 3-year-old to be 5. We don't ask an 11-year-old to be 15. We we relate to a 3-year-old as a 3-year-old and a 5-year-old as a 5-year-old, Okay. So I actually found the study in the, of developmental psychology hugely helpful to be able to get perspective about all of this because otherwise the judgment is you've got to be joking that this is actually happening, you know? And I remember when I was a very young nun in the monastery, I had this huge amount of judgment towards my other sisters, you know? They weren't good enough. They were doing it all wrong. I knew better. They shouldn't be like that, you know? And then it just took a lot, a lot of, of patience, a lot of time, a lot of reframing for me to be able to see that for where they were at, they were doing the best that they could. Now, this is not condoning behavior which is irresponsible or harmful to others or having huge consequences. But what it does do is it puts it into perspective so that rather than being judgmental, there's a compassionate response, okay? Now, this whole topic about levels of maturity and what's going on in our political situation right now is actually a relevant topic because when you understand the levels, then for me what happens in that is I can see that our current political situation 
is the result of a crisis of evolution in maturation rather than the fault of the particular personalities of the people involved, okay? And when I see it that way, it takes a lot of one kind of pressure off of my system because otherwise I think, how did I end up in this insane world, you know? It doesn't make sense to me. So it takes the pressure off of trying to understand how we ended up in this mess, but then it gives me clarity about where I need to focus my attention so that I can actually be contributing to the solution rather than participating in the problem. And so for me, the solution is about my own maturation, and my own maturation is to see the places where I am inconsistent in, I can say that I, I value, I value diversity. I value diversity and I like it when people of diverse values and can feel welcome in this space. <clears throat> but that politician is an idiot. And I just assume they evaporate. So there's a contradiction between my inclusivity that is filling me with this sense, yes, we are all worthy, except that one. That one is not worthy. We should not, we should not be respectful to that one because they're not worthy. They're not being kind to everybody else, and so they should evaporate. So I was, I was doing this, I was doing this, a little bit of resonance, yeah? So I was, I was, I was doing um, a class on, on this whole topic, and somebody posted this, it was perfect, perfect post. Somebody had, somebody would have, what was the story? They were in a diner, and a Muslim woman and her young girl with a headscarf came into the diner, and a man stood up, and he said, shouting, um, you have no right to be here, leave this country, get out of here, we don't want you. And she felt threatened and intimidated. And so she took her daughter's hand, and they were heading towards the door. And a big, tall, strapping man with tattoos and bald stood up, and he said, I'm part of the armed services, and it is my job to protect the citizens of this country, and that includes you and your daughter. Let me, allow me to escort you through the line so that you can have your dinner. So she was willing for him to do that. So they get up to the person who was the first one who spoke. And he said, looking right in his eyes, are you sure you want to have dinner here tonight? <laughs> At which point he got out and left and left them all alone. And the Facebook posts were all about, yay, there's a hero, he saved the day. 
And I was like, this is part of the problem, guys. This is not the solution. Yes, it's good to defend somebody when they are vulnerable and they are under attack. But when you turn around and attack the attacker, it is not a win. It's more part of the problem. So respect is not condoning the attacker's actions. It's creating the space where it's possible to walk somebody through the line and not turn and intimidate them so they then feel unsafe to eat dinner. It's a movement towards something that is big enough to hold both. Rather than compartmentalize, and make one the hero and the other the villain. Hello. Uh, well, apropos of that, um, I recently had a situation um, very recently, as a matter of fact, this weekend, um, I went to, um, I, I'm from, originally from Chicago, I went to um, a Catholic high school um, that I had a bad experience there and was very happy when I reached New York. And, you know, I, I had no connection to that place afterwards. But a friend who um, had gone to that place uh, sent me an article. She said, Kyle, can you see this? This is 25 years later. Um, a um, teacher uh, at the school, uh, he, he is alleging that he was fired from his job right when he left to receive tenure, received promotions, he was one of the favorite teachers. He was being fired from the day because um, a student somehow at the school had found that he had a profile on a dating website. The student had created um, his own profile, took a snapshot of the teacher, and distributed it around the school, and it got the description. And it was several, the student got apparently disciplined, but many people are saying it, he was not very thoroughly disciplined. But many, maybe four months later, when the teacher was up for review, he lost his job. And when I heard this, I became incredibly And um, I fired off this email you know, telling, telling um, the school you know, what I had gone through with the PhD in there, um, you know, what I had gone through with the faculty. And uh, it was this blistering email that I said, I said it in adult language. You know, but I said sharply, and, and, I, and I stand by what I did say, but it was very strongly, particularly strongly worded. And um, this friend, you know, had been gathering up uh, lots of comments after she had attacked me. And then I said, I just want you to know 
that I um, I have uh, written to them. This is what I wrote to them. So I put it in, in, in her box. Um, and she said, well, you know, this is form. I'm sorry. So I'm just, I'm inviting you to synthesize or distill. Oh, well, here's what happened. I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. Yes. The next thing I knew, people were like championing this letter that I wrote them, that, that I wrote to the yes. faculty, and we're all like, you know, rah, rah, like you said. Yeah. But then the faculty contacted me, and they said, well, here's our side of the story. And, you know, they, they said, we can't really tell you, you know, why someone's turned you. But, you know, there yeah. were situations in subordination. And, you know, and the thing is, like, this firestorm is going on over here. And all of a sudden, I took that, and I was like, well, this, in a court of law, what would happen here to his side, I know that I'm firmly entrenched on this side. Yes. You know, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm being, people are trying to get me to, you know, completely stand up, and I stood back. So in a situation like that, where you're activated because there's something that's tremendously alive for you based on the rawness and the reality of what your own personal experience has been, what happens when we feel that rush of, yes, you know, this is unjust, unjust, and I need to speak out about it. And then we take the time that is needed to, 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 to be with the anger that says no, and then, and then allow that to release through our system so that when we are speaking, the speaking then can touch not only the truth of our own experience, but invite a wise response from the people that we're speaking to. I feel at this point that I still need to stand back because what I'm seeing is a lot of Yes. For both sides have been able to even, even come to the table. So I think what you're pointing to is wise, that when there is not yet a container to hold the whole process, then it is dubious the when we engage with it. Because what we're just doing is activating intense emotion without creating a opportunity for the different things that need to be said to be shared. Yeah. What about the ants? Walking on the ants. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hello. Hello. I wonder if you have any ways of addressing feelings of overwhelmness in regards to what's going on politically and uh, maybe some reluctance to be active. Do activism because of that feeling, and also how to deal with becoming burnt out after the fact. So, one of the things that's happening contemporarily with what's going on in our political situation is just that there's a, about a half a dozen or a dozen trauma vortexes that are being activated in people because of all kinds of reasons around sexual abuse, around predators, around uh, being victimized, about 
any uh, any of us who have um, the sense of somehow being a targeted person, you know, and or have been, you know, all of that is active right now. And so, if that is part of the reason why there is a feeling of overwhelm, then there is a way in which what is needed is to attend to our own healing, to allow this as an opportunity to cleanse and to release the the activation that is causing that. Okay. So that's one level of it, is to check and see how much of what is going on for me is my trauma of my past that's getting activated by the contemporary situation that we're navigating. I've heard this for true for Jews. I've heard this true for uh, people of color. I've heard this is in, very true for the LGBT com- community. And so just check, that's one layer of it. The other layer of it is that, that it's, it's dis, um, completely disorganizing. When we have the assumption that we're living in a society with a government that is, um, uh, has our best interests or is not uh, uh, making decisions which are going to be tremendously detrimental for us, when we have some modicum, it might be small, but some modicum of confidence that the people who are in political offices have skill, capacity, responsibility, and have our interests at heart, okay? And when that shifts, it's, it, it's like an identity crisis, you know, that, that there's several things that are going on. One hand, there's the, the, there's the details of the practical things that need to be attended to. Then there's the shift of safety, of thinking that I didn't need to worry about this. And then there's the identity of, you know, what's happening in my world. In each of these areas, it can feel overwhelming. And so what is needed is to step into a bigger picture that looks at things from a, from a perspective that allows us to have confidence that we're, we are, we, we have resources to deal with it. Let me tell you a story, a, a share a personal story and see if that helps. Um, I was in Minneapolis at the time of the election and right afterwards I was staying with my friends Stacy and Shelley and Stacy is a, a woman of color and they're both queer and we had a panel discussion and we were having conversations and she was saying, you know, the stuff that we're seeing has always been there. It has always been there. It just, it has never been so visible before. And so for her, what was happening was not new. And so what's one of the veils that is being stripped apart is the the veil of comfort and confidence that everything is okay, that people who have been marginalized have never felt. They have never known it's okay. All right? And so we are entering into the territory of discomfort that has been the bedrock of many people's lives from the very day that they were born or from very early on in their lives. 
And so as we are navigating the kind of removing of our comfort and the exposure of our privilege and the, the recognition of that there are so many people who are living, who have lived with fear and discomfort and overwhelm a lot of the times, then it gives us the opportunity to get bigger. If recognizing that what I'm experiencing now is what many people live with all the time, then how do I want to respond to that? Do I want to contract back into the safety of my world? Or do I want to meet my overwhelm as best as I can myself? And then recognize that in small ways, with maybe in a simple project or a simple thing to touch and support somebody else that they can also feel resourced. So engagement doesn't mean that we need to have a plan to save the world. It can be, how can I reach out and touch two people that also are feeling overwhelmed in a way that's meaningful to me, you know? It doesn't have to be grandiose. But in terms of not burning out, that's one of the reasons why it is really important to be anchored to our practice, to be anchored to refuge, and to be anchored to a community of people who understand what the Dhamma is about. Because the the fires of greed and ill will burn really hot, And it takes a lot of fortitude to meet it and not be burnt up by it. And the way of doing that is by connecting to the the heart of goodness, to the heart of compassion, to the heart that recognizes that intrinsic to living beings is a mind that is free from greed and free from hatred and free from confusion. It's just that it is often obscured. So when we live with that knowledge, it's different than when we don't. And when our practice connects us to what is vast and pervasive, touches it, opens us to that then we are in a wellspring of something that is nourishing. It doesn't mean that we don't get tired, and it doesn't mean that we don't need to rest, but it's very different than if we are not. So one of the things that, um, like, uh, I I was at a teaching, and the Tibetan teacher wanted to do a sharing of blessings, and he said that, you know, if, if you don't do the sharing of blessings, then the, the, the goodness that comes from coming and listening to the teachings is a little bit like, like keeping it in a glass like this and leaving it outside. And so when, when it rains, it fills up, and when it gets hot, it evaporates. But when you share the blessings, you take the glass and you pour it into the ocean. And so it, it, it's not a question of whether it's going to be hot and the, it's going to evaporate. The blessings are connected to something that's vaster and you don't dry up. Well, the same is true with connecting to the, the, the heart of loving kindness that is present when we 
are able to touch the tenderness in our own heart and, and, and care for one another. And let that help us break or soften the boundary that separates us from each other. Does that help you? One more question. Who's got the mic? Yeah. It was him. Beautiful, beautifully said, yeah. And so when we started the meditation this evening and we connected to the dignity inside of us, you know, when we connect with the dignity inside of us, that that's the place where we can connect with the dignity in each other. Beautifully said. Thank you. Good. So let me um, just invite us to change gears again, and I'd like to do a sharing of blessings and then hand over to Kathy again for final announcements. And so, just coming back into the sitting posture. And just notice what you notice. Notice what is alive. Notice what is agitated. Notice what is resonant. Notice what feels calm. Notice what you notice. And taking a deep breath in and touching what is present. and relaxing and releasing and letting go. So just taking a moment and considering the effort of what it was to get here tonight and the many, many different choices that you had. And what happens when a group of people come together and meditate and discuss the Dhamma and consider the challenges of what we are navigating in our world, in our personal world, in our heart, in our lives, and share with each other in this way. When the the possibility of living with dignity, of tenderness, is shared in a way that gives a little bit more confidence, that that's a worthy endeavor, a little bit more hope, that it's possible to navigate. And so we take our individual efforts and allow it to turn into a field of blessings. And allow this field of blessings to fill up this room, touch everyone in this room, spread out to our family, our mentors, our teachers, our friends, the people that we know who are hurting, who are struggling, who are scared. 
people that we know who are angry. Letting it spread out into the street and to the people that we don't know that are walking on the street or living on the street. And letting it spread far and vast and wide so that all beings, the ones that we know and care about, the ones that we don't know, the ones that we have strong opinions about, (coughs) we don't agree. We don't respect their actions. With all beings everywhere, we share the blessings of what we are doing here so that all beings can know a path that opens the heart beyond boundaries where all beings can have their basic needs taken care of, where there is support for those who need it. So thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you for lending an ear, for listening, for being here with your heart. And it's just lovely to see you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.